Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Pre-market really didn't like the macro today. PPI comes in hot, up seven-tenths, biggest monthly increase since June, although the year-on-year is a fresh cycle low, up six. A lot of earnings in Fed speak, including Mester, who says she saw a convincing case for 50 basis points last meeting. Our roadmap is going to begin with the murky macro outlook. Wholesale prices with that big gain. Claims under 200K for a fifth straight week. Plus, we've got some pain in media this morning, keeping an eye on shares of Paramount, which are going to be down. You know, you've got a tough ad sales market, obviously a lot of costs for streaming, $500 million in negative free cash flow. But they say, hey, they're going to turn things around over the course of this year. And Cisco's strong quarter, CEO Chuck Robbins saying the company is better positioned now than any time in his tenure. He will join us exclusively later this hour. Let's begin with that hotter-than-expected PPI number. We mentioned seven-tenths, looking for four-tenths. Even the core, Mike, five, we were looking for three. Uh, It's a lot better than 11, which was the story uh, almost a year ago, but still hotter than the market expected. Yeah, the slope down is not as steep as we've been getting used to and wanting, I guess. And the market, uh, you know, has been dealing with some hot data all around this week. So CPI, only marginally so, retail sales and now PPI. And now the conversation quickly turns to, uh, you know, we were worried if we could navigate a soft landing. Well, the, the economy doesn't look even soft enough in the near term. The Mester comments, Cleveland Fed president saying that she preferred or saw a good case for a 50 basis point hike last meeting as opposed to 25. That really got the future's attention uh, because I think this measured quarter point per meeting pace where we're going to kind of navigate gradually toward the terminal rate was was pretty uh, acceptable, I think, to, to the stock market. But here we have a market that is, you know, up 8% year to date, started to get overexcited. Uh, there's a bit of a beta chase, a bit of a grab for risk. We've been talking about, about yeah. the, the, you know, the, the bear hunt that was on yesterday and the day before where a lot of the heavily shorted stocks were we're running as well as I mean, the, on that the point, boom bust. The, the uh, Goldman areas. most shorted stocks, Mike, were up 4.5% yesterday, yeah. you know, those 50 stocks. You've got a lot of hedge funds that run what we call tight nets, meaning they're not taking a lot of exposure. Yep. So they have a lot of hedge, meaning they're shorting a lot of stuff. And man, they sent some of those names up sharply yeah. yesterday. Not sure what that's a sign of, if anything. I'll leave that to you. No, it's really a sign of. Um of essentially the market outperforming the way people were positioned. And I do think you have, again, that that kind of people reach back for familiar names. If this market's going to run, let me hitch myself to the fastest moving vehicles. And that's sometimes a Coinbase, which goes up 10 percent in a day. You know, something like that. Talk about the heavily shorted these. By the way, Roku was up a lot into its report. It's a relatively And then confirm that short. ultimately because yeah. it had a good one. Tesla, exactly. obviously, another name that's been moving yeah, up. Yeah, less heavily shorted. But certainly is part of that vein of, you know, when, when people get excited, they, they grab for those things. And so I, I think it's all part of the same complex. I've been saying that it's not either healthy or unhealthy. If it was all that was going on in the market, it's not ideal. Um, but... 
it's what happens when the market starts to run. You know, I mean, and that's what we've been doing for the last, you want to call it four months, or you want to call it six weeks. Uh, you've been bid all, you know, every dip has, has really been grabbed. Yesterday in particular, we're up 1% on an intraday basis, <laughs> even though the market really didn't do a lot uh, point to point. So we're going to get tested here. Uh, Two-year yield basically back at the highs. So that gets your attention. And, um, you know, we'll have to see if, uh, if we can handle this. We've navigated through a not great earnings season because the overall earnings base is fine and the estimates are coming down, but not rapidly. So, uh, you know, we'll see. The risk reward changes when, when prices go yeah. higher. Uh, we'll see what yields do. Yesterday, of course, they came off the early boil as well. Ten-year uh, above 3.8. Uh, Santelli's talking, you know, whether or not we start to target four. Uh, you mentioned sort of, um, I guess, the uh, less ideal names rising. Kalanovic over at J.P. Morgan yesterday yeah. said this is not fighting the Fed. This is taunting the Fed between the crypto names, uh, the meme names. And as a result, he looks at the NDX two-year yield correlation breaking down and yeah. says maybe this winds up with a uh, correction of 5 to 10. Correction of 5 to 10 would be perfectly healthy and not a big deal and leave us well above where we were a few months ago. So, you know, I, I wouldn't argue with that on any, uh, on any basis. What we've been doing so far is uh, this month is trading in a 3% range. We've been holding this 4,100 area. Uh, you're going to hear some people who were bearish coming into this week thinking that we probably were vulnerable seem to forget what the calendar was because now they're saying we're only being held up because it's expiration on Friday, yes. um, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily directionally change the story. What it does is sometimes traps the market uh, at certain index levels if there's no other overriding factor. So maybe that's what's kept us in the 4100s for now. Is it is it concerning to get a, you know, as we said, biggest month on month PPI gain in, in about half a year? While Philly Fed continues to crater? I was going to say that. It's such a lumpy, uneven picture of the economy right now. And industrial production week this week, too. So manufacturing is really following along the script of, look, leading indicators say we're in for a downturn. We're going to get some kind of negative quarterly GDP number. On the other hand, anything labor-related, spending-related, uh, and, of course, inflation-related to that uh, is, is holding up much better. And so there is this kind of hot, cold, offsetting uh, currents, and, uh, and we're trying to sort those things out. Right. So, But isn't it just where, I mean, the market seems to be adjusting to something we've been talking about, which is the idea that terminal rate may end up being higher, yep. the Fed is going to be more stubborn, and they're not backing off. I exactly. mean, John Gray in Asia making up, you know, CEO, not the CEO, uh, president of Blackstone saying, like a lot of others, the market's too optimistic over the economy weakening at this point, and the Federal Reserve likely to take rates up to a 5.5 to 5.5% level for a while. Yeah. I was struck by Blinder yesterday on our air, yeah. sort of I've saying been, I may go to 5.5 on my terminal rate. I was below 5. I've been using the hashtag Diamond's Revenge. You know, yeah. Jamie's been talking about right. 6 for, what, a year almost? Well, talking about 6 for a year, he was talking about 3% 10-year Treasury yields were too low, and then they went to 2, you know, so... Yes, but you're right. It's a different regime. And I think that there's a, there's a way to frame that, though, that says we have a market that now has an assumption of a 5% short-term rate. You ha already have short-term you know, tre Treasury bill yields there. And Atlanta Fed GDP for those quarters at 2.4%. Real. So what does that mean? Does it mean the economy is so good it can handle it or that it's all kind of, kind of building up the pressure to give way all at once. Uh, there is an amazing split between the market's bet and Atlanta Fed yeah. or Goldman yesterday reiterating the recession call goes down right. uh, now 25% odds as opposed to consensus 65% odds. 
Yeah. It's a huge split. It is a huge split. I mean, all of the, again, like all of the, the, the playbooks from past cycles tell you, look, the odds are rising. If you just look at the yield curve, you just look at all the things that we use as beacons, that gets you toward that 65% over some period of time, it does, yeah. maybe by the end of the year. Um, I guess the question is, you know, how much does it matter? What's the character of the downturn going to be? I remember, we can all remember, in 2015 and 16, there was an industrial recession. There was an earnings recession. There was not a broadly defined total economy recession. The market did nothing no. for two years. I also remember the mid to late 90s when we had 6 7% interest That's rates right. and we were doing just fine. And, and the, in fact, and we the even S&P had a speculative bubble then. Times. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, it's completely all about kind of the crowd psychology around it, much more than it is some kind of precisely tuned math. Uh, in terms of what people will pay for uh, for assets. But look, uh, as I said, when you get up 8% in six weeks, giving some back is not a big deal. Uh, on the other hand, you keep looking at the cyclical leadership, the small cap stocks doing fine, and it doesn't seem like the market is, is pricing itself for a downturn. So if higher for longer means it's higher for longer accompanied by an economy that, that holds up, Maybe the market isn't out of tune with that at the moment. Yeah. Well, certainly on the micro front, I'm trying to keep a list this morning of the names that have guided above or raised guidance. It would include Twilio and Crocs and Roku and Hyatt and Cisco. Uh, pretty good revenue guidance for the full year. Oh. Chuck Robbins saying the company is better positioned now than it ever has been since he became CEO eight years ago. Take a listen to what he said on the earnings call. While the environment we're operating in remains dynamic, Cisco is better positioned today than at any time since I became CEO almost eight years ago. And we're going to get a chance to talk to Chuck in a few minutes uh, when he joins us, talk about the quarter and what this means. They normally give pretty colorful macro commentary, I mean, Cisco. They're, they're, um, their revenue guidance up as much as double digits is pretty, pretty significant uh, and very positive call. You can see it moved up after hours. There it is uh, pushing 50. There's a little we'll have commentary. a lot more time to talk to We will. And so the, we yeah. should ask him, there's some commentary that even the revenue guidance raise is a lot about backlog clearing and is a lot about just normalization because uh, orders may be not as strong. So uh, just see what that means and just how long a, a tail that, that type of, uh, of activity has. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was chatter yesterday. Uh, they're highly skewed to enterprise yeah. over service providers. Uh, cancellations looked minimal. Uh, pretty decent call from some of the trading desks in advance of the earnings uh, yesterday afternoon. Speaking of earnings, we've been also uh, focused on, oh, you guys want to want to move on? All right, forget it. Yeah, we'll talk later. After, after the break. After we'll the talk break. about after the break. After. Uh, the Bitcoin rally in the meantime does roll on. Charlie Munger, though, once again, still slamming the cryptocurrency. You'll hear what he told our Becky Quick in just a moment as futures remain weak on a busy day for, uh, for eco data. We've had starts, claims, Philly Fed, PPI, and still at least four more Fed speakers. We're back in a minute. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. 
For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back. Keeping an eye shares uh, on eye on shares of Paramount. One of those names that you know we were talking about in some ways earlier. Street tire yesterday. Um, so you got to take that into context. There it is. I mean, you can see what it's done for the year to date, even the week. Probably not bad. Um, but it's going to be down after reporting earnings. So the company's you know uh, got a lot of negative cash flow. Five hundred million bucks for the full year is what they're talking about. This will be the peak year of losses. Bob Backish in the many interviews we've done uh, has indicated that, and 24 is the year in which they believe they will get to, uh, to profitability in streaming, of course. Speaking of streaming, that 9.9 million uh, subs added number was very strong, the strongest amongst any of the streamers out there. Now, quality of subs may be a question. Remember, they got a Walmart deal, um, but that's a big number. I'm sure they'll get some questions on the call specific perhaps to that. I think the Q&A has just begun. Uh, and they're also taking a $1.3 to $1.5 billion impairment charge, you see. Uh, we showed you that as well. They're writing down a lot of the stuff for Showtime as they merge Showtime onto Paramount+. Plus. Uh, their costs will go down over time, given the breadth now of the platform. They're sticking with franchises on Showtime, but that has resulted in a number of shows being cut you may have heard about it, some chatter in the media press about that, but that's a $1.3 to $1.5 billion charge. Ad market, we've heard this lately, guys. Stabilization has been the word. They're using it, too. Now, you're down, but you're getting more stable. Uh, kind of Comcast referred to it. Roku, which we can get to in a minute, talked about that as well. And so has Paramount sort of said things are starting to stabilize. That may add a little bit of a bid to some of these media-related names. Yeah. Uh, some of the reports on the call, uh, back is saying improvement in ads in the back half of the year. Uh, recent activity in the auto market uh, is encouraging. And David, as you know, uh, leaning into franchises, they mentioned Scream, Paw Patrol. Backish says the new uh, Mission Impossible is, quote, out of control. Out of control. And a lot of this bump in... Uh, I don't know if you knew this. Tom Cruise does all his own <laughs> yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Sure. But a lot of this bump in the in the Paramount Plus subs is because Maverick went to went yeah. to direct. Yes, uh, that, that certainly helped. And obviously, Maverick, the number one movie. You you pointed out how Spielberg told Cruise yeah. he basically saved the motion picture industry in terms of people going to a theater. Um, you know, we've talked, though, a lot about the negative... cat. I mean, the company doesn't generate any cash right now. In fact, they're... It's less, as they call it, $500 million for the year. $631 million goes out the door for the dividend every year. Yeah. That's for Sherry Redstone and National Amusements to a certain extent. We've questioned Backish numerous times about that. They maintain that dividend at this point. Uh, on the call, he did say we expect cash flow, to, or the CFO said we expect cash flow to continue to be impacted in advance of meaningful year-over-year improvement in 2024. When we return to positive cash flow, we'll continue to manage our balance sheet with an eye to navigating the short-term cash flow dynamic. And obviously, Berkshire continues to be by far the largest holder, increasing their position. Unclear as to exactly what it is they see here, yeah. but they like it. 
And, you know, the, a lot of the upside, at least year over year, was also, of course, box office. So filmed entertainment, a strong uh, area, which is always, a you know, you don't know if the market's willing to project ahead that that's going to continue. So uh, often that's not a huge component of, uh, of the multiple, even though they had a very good fourth quarter in the box office. But, yeah, I mean, so Berkshire owns 15 percent. Yeah, at least. Thereabouts. Yep. Uh, you you want to ask how to get a short squeeze? <laughs> get a cheap stock that's in all the value indexes and uh, and people think it's in secular decline. Um, Buffett's not selling his 15. No. The short, therefore, the short as a percentage of float is even higher. That's that's the squeeze formula. All, all right a good there. point. And overall, in terms of when you look at the, the, the overall business, whether it's Disney, whether it is our parent company, Comcast with Peacock, whether it is uh, Warner Brothers Discovery or Paramount, everybody's trying to figure it out in terms of their cost structure. How to compete with Netflix, which obviously is sort of out there on its own at this point. It's got its own thing going. It is profitable. Um, and so it's all about where are you versus Netflix and what are you doing with your cost and structure at, and to be able to compete? And at what subscriber level are you anticipating? You can break even. You can be profitable. You have scale. Right. And you're, a play, and you're, you're, you're here to stay. Meantime, uh, Jessica Reef Ehrlich over at B of A uh, mentioning today. Actually, the title of the note is Everything's on the Table, which is what Iger told David. Uh, but her, her point is several potential outcomes for Hulu. But the idea uh, that uh, Disney acquiring Comcast stake uh, is the most likely it, it does seem that way, obviously. It's a week ago that we did our Iger interview. And then, of course, we ended that with uh, Nelson Pell saying no more proxy fight. But one of the key news-making things that, that uh, Iger said there's Roku, uh, was about Hulu uh, and that, uh, again, general entertainment, not where their focus is, and certainly bringing out the idea that they could be a seller of the uh, 66, 67 percent of, of Hulu that they own. The question is, who's the buyer? Uh, Jessica Reeferlich bring up, you know, it's, it's, it's our parent company is the most likely buyer, uh, if, if that were to be the case. But there's a lot of moving parts there, including what are you really getting if you're not buying the production entities to a certain extent that fuel Hulu, FX and the like. Um, we'll see where it ends up, but uh, it's an important component of Disney's overall picture in part because if they were to have to buy in the $9 billion, it adds leverage to their balance sheet. For sure, yeah. Um, and, I mean, Roku, I mean, we did, we yeah. did show those lines. Please. I mean, that, that is going to be trading higher as well. Um, so, you know, pretty much uh, And it was up yesterday, expected. to your point. Yeah. So this is just an additional gain on top of what were those gains yesterday going into the print. And, you know, talking about advertising stabilizing just a little bit, it's an interesting situation. It's another one of those charts that was just to the moon in pandemic times. It crashed. Uh, it's interesting at a $9 billion market cap, you know, and uh, just given how central for now the role seems to be in uh, internet TV, streaming, whatever it is, just as a utility, just as a component of TVs, uh, as a player in the, the sort of free streaming TV networks. This is the year when apparently non-pay TV households will surpass pay TV households, I guess, by e-marketer numbers. So that's their the hunting ground, uh, I suppose. And it's like $1.3 billion in net cash. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting situation, even though really no projection ahead to profitability for the company. No, they do guide ahead uh, for the quarter yeah. on revenue and EBITDA. And you got a lot of the sell side trying to catch up. Atlantic today uh, raises their target from 40 uh, to 76, yeah. uh, not that much farther from where we are at the moment. Yeah. So, again, it's not like you really put a, a, a traditional multiple on it that, that makes sense at this level. It's much more like, what is this asset worth if it's going to be a lasting player 
in this galaxy of, of streaming services. Sure. Or does it just get bought? One well, day? that's the other part. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've always thought like TiVo was kind of the model in a way. It was a technology, it was a brand, and then it was just like a technology, you know, something on the back end mm-hmm. of, yeah, uh, sure. of, of streaming. So. Still to come this morning, as we said, our exclusive with Cisco's Chuck Robbins on the quarterly beat and the raise guidance. He'll join us right here at Post 9 in just a few minutes. Futures, meantime, continue to nurse the ouchie from some of the hot inflation data today as PPI comes in ahead. More Squawk on the Street in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Talk some crypto. Bitcoin's uh, rising to a near six-month high, building on yesterday's gains as this proposed rule by the SEC that could squeeze digital asset platforms not as stringent as some investors had been expecting. Uh, But then there's Berkshire's vice chair, Charlie Munger, continues to blast crypto. Here's what he told our Becky Quick at the Daily Journal's annual meeting. It's just unspeakable. It's it's an absolute horror. And and, uh, I'm ashamed of my country that so many people believe in this kind of crap and that the government allows it to exist. It is totally, absolutely crazy, stupid gambling with enormous house odds for the people on the other side. And they cheat in addition to cheating in the betting. It's just crazy. You from Munger, uh, not terribly new or surprising, although Becky suggested on Squawk this morning, Mike, that FTX has probably prodded him to ramp up the rhetoric. Yeah, it would seem so. It seems uh, probably somebody who's been skeptical all along on the way up is you feel some vindication um, because of FTX, but also because of what happened to, you know, a trillion dollars getting wiped out in market value. And then with the SEC essentially going around and trying to define a lot of the crypto related projects, the, the, the kind of you know, DeFi stuff, the the high interest, highly engineered loans as securities that should have been registered as such. I mean, it just creates a little more momentum for this skeptics case. Um, I don't know. I think people who believe in crypto believe it's something more than just a trading uh, asset uh, among true believers probably aren't there to to say 99 year old guys are the ones we're trying to pull on board. Um, But, you know, I mean, Munger's other point is that sovereign currencies is one of the best things that's that's ever happened to mankind in his view. But I wonder if you think the action is any way related to, say, the CBO's uh, forecast of of what's going to be added to our debt in the next 10 years. I don't think so. It feels like it's still just trading as a, you know, a digital risk asset, to be honest. I mean, it's it's really going right along uh, Bitcoin prices, right along the lines of a lot of the, uh, you know, the gamier parts of tech. I guess longer term, clearly that's part of the bull, the base bull case. But look, the dollar is, you know, it's 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 down a little in the last few months, but there's nothing that's happened in the last few years really that's compromised the sense that the dollar is an enviable, you know, global currency right. in a sense. I guess unless you listen to Ray Dalio uh, in yeah. Dubai uh, arguing that maybe the the Chinese you on will make a run, you know, at some sort of. That's uh, fine. Uh, There's always different, you know, ways to to mix it, I suppose. But look, a trillion dollars is where the asset value is right now. It's it's really not something that you even have to have an opinion about. In my view, it's always been that. 
There's no right or wrong price. You don't have to necessarily have an opinion about it at this level, at this moment. Let's get to the opening bell here with uh, the pre-market close to session lows at the uh, big board this morning. Uh, asymmetric ETFs celebrating the recent listings of two new ETFs. And at the NASDAQ, Ocean Biomedical celebrating a listing via SPAC, David. Let's see if that activity takes place. Money back and something. Yeah. You had some. You had some forced saving for uh, exactly. For a yes. Exactly. Uh, um, in a market, obviously, last year certainly where you would have uh, not done well if you'd been invested in the broader market. Yeah. But the SPAC craze is obviously long over, though they continue to sort of percolate. For sure. I was going to mention. I mean, just in terms of stocks that you know had. Uh, the massive run, then the bust, and then a big revival Shopify this morning. Uh, it opens down uh, almost 15%. Now, that's after doubling off the low in October, delivering earnings after the close yesterday that were pretty much better than expected across the board. The guidance a little perceived as a little bit light or conservative, which implied a real deceleration of organic growth. So you have to see, uh, you know, exactly how that jibes with what the street was already anticipating, whether it's read to be uh, too conservative. But right now, uh, that's going to lead the give back of some of the, you know, the higher beta stocks. Yeah, even though we had actually some target increases, Baird yeah. went uh, up 10 bucks to 55. Overall, breadth is pretty negative here at the open, uh, Mike. Yep. Uh, only a handful of S&P components are in the green. Uh, Cisco is going to be among them. And we'll talk to Chuck Robbins in a minute. Um, but uh, there were, as I said, some names that uh, had decent guidance. We mentioned Roku, uh, Crocs with a beat, uh, double beat, and then they got above on Q1 revenue, EPS, and full year EPS. Um, and then we got Twilio, which is also up over 16% right now. The sort of the story is getting serious about profitability, seems to be. Also, an unexpected buyback, a billion dollars. Um, Jeff Lawson, co founder and CEO, sort of talking about that. and. Um, their decision there. He's also buying, what, 10 million bucks of stock in the open market as well. Mike, I don't remember. Do you, are they declassifying? Are they moving to one share structure? Oh, I don't know I if they are. Later this that, year. Yeah. I, somebody, I'm looking for it. I haven't found it. But, you know, perhaps it explains some of the moves that are very pro-investor they're making here. I'm um, looking at a Morgan Stanley note. The investor message finally shows as read uh, about Twilio. And you can see the response it's getting in the stock market. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. You talk about the, you know, the, the, the dual share class stocks um, have been really strong because that's a proxy for that IPO, you know, era. Uh, the the uh, VXF is, a, is an ETF I look at all the time. It's, uh, it's everything in the market outside the S&P 500. So it's got all Blackstone and, and the, uh, you know, the, all the private equity firms, but also Uber and Square and, uh, and Airbnb and all those stocks that never made it into the S&P 500 because of profitability reasons. And it's been massively outperforming this year. So again, there's so many ways to slice this market this year and say, uh, you know, people rediscovered their appetite for risk just to have a little bit of sure. a rebuild. Now, a little gut check on that. Yeah, uh, Twilio, uh, by the way, a lot of those uh, recent job cuts uh, may start to kick in. Uh, they do guide above uh, for OperNet, and that's the first peak above the 200-day in about a year and a half. 
yeah. uh, for, for Twilio. Supermajority yeah. is ending. Thank you to my you friends go. out there who text me immediately. Excellent. Appreciate it. Yeah, the supermajority of Twilio is ending. Important, guys, because we don't see that that often. And certainly in some ways you could say, oh, they're getting ahead of it because they're doing what they need to do to make sure they don't attract an activist right. when, they, uh, when their defenses will no longer be as, as sub, uh, substantial as they are right now. Yeah, I mean, and um, also the, and the, the perception is that in this general area, there has to be some kind of mop-up consolidation so that down right. the road, who knows what happens. If, yeah. um, finally, real quick, not a name we mentioned, guys, but FEMSA I wanted to mention. Fomento Economico Mexicano SAB. <laughs> but it gets traded here. It's a big company. Uh, they're getting rid of their Heineken stake. That's not an insignificant stake. Seven plus billion dollars uh, and a number of other things that they announce as well at FEMSA. Um, but they are going to eliminate uh, their ownership stake in Heineken, which is trades. And Heineken says, hey, you know, we will, uh, we will uh, be... Refo uh, I'm sorry, Heineken will carefully consider the implications and evaluate all options following the announcement by FEMSA, and including that may be acquiring those shares from, uh, from FEMSA in any future sale. This is going to take some time. They're not talking about right away. They're talking about a, you know, a two-year plan here at FEMSA. In fact, 24 to 36 months, a number of different things they've announced, but that stock is up about 5%. All right, let's talk about another stock that's up in a market that is uh, down substantially right now. Of course, we talked about it a lot at the top of the show in terms of the market's response to potential hawkishness at the Fed. But Cisco shares, well, they're still getting a boost this morning. This after earnings topped expectations. Company raising its full-year outlook. CEO Chuck Robbins telling analysts on the conference call that demand for its products remains stable. And supply chain, well, that overall improved. Joining us now is the man himself. Mr. Robbins at uh, Post 9. Good to have you here. Hey, Jim. guys. It's good to be here. Great to have you. You know, listen, there's a positive response to the market, though perhaps less than might, some may have anticipated given those revenue numbers. On the call, your CFO uh, said that you've had better visibility than we've ever had in the past. Now, I'm not sure if he was speaking of specific parts of the, of the overall market or overall, but talk to me about visibility and why yeah. you guys feel so confident, because the market may, may be sort of saying, well, we're not so sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And, and I want to just thank the entire team, in particular our supply chain team that has worked tirelessly over the last two years to try to get us to where we are today. The visibility is, is created by a couple things. Number one, we've been embarking on this business transformation for the, the entire time that I've been CEO. And we're now at a point where 44% of our revenue is recurring. And I think that's just not quite understood yet. So if you go back eight years ago, we would have to take orders in the quarter for roughly 75% of our revenue in a quarter. So you just didn't have as much predictability as we have now. So you've got, you've got that, we got $23 billion of ARR. We have $32 billion of RPO, of which 17 billion is gonna revenue in the next 12 months. And we have a backlog as we end the fiscal year, post the guidance that we just gave, we have a backlog that's going to be in excess of twice the normal backlog as we exit the year. All those things just give us good visibility. Yeah, you've said the backlog far exceeds historical levels, uh, even as you're drawing it down. Why? Explain to people why that's the case and what that means. Well, I think the, uh, the whole notion that we're actually just draining backlog, our backlog was created by significant customer demand, so it's not like it just showed up. And, uh, and so we have, uh, and, and then our, our order growth remains stable. Uh, this last quarter was the third highest Q2 in the history of the company from an orders perspective. So it, it didn't feel like, you know, this thing is falling off a cliff by any stretch. 
Uh, and so when you combine the RPO and the fact that we have revenue on our balance sheet that's coming off every quarter, with orders remaining stable and with our backlog, we have a high degree of visibility and feel confident. Chuck, what would you say to those who want to take your results and sort of impose them broadly speaking on a stronger than expected economy? Uh, how would you characterize things? Because you've been with us any number of times yeah. and certainly not been as positive as you have been. Well, I mean, I've been here when China shut down. Yes, we you talked did. about power supplies. I remember that. That's not a lot of fun, but uh, today's a much more enjoyable day to come on the air. But it's. Um, Look, I think it's mixed. I think it's very mixed. I think that if you look at the the, ver the industry segments that we have, we have some like financial services that continue to be strong for obvious reasons. Their businesses are doing really well. Those who have uh, sig significant exposure to consumer or they, they are having tougher times, they, they're not as, it's not as consistent as you would think. So, uh, but overall, I think when you balance it all out, our enterprise and commercial business grew double digits sequentially. Our public sector business was actually stronger than our historical sequential ranges, so it outperformed with U.S. federal being very strong. And then our service provider business, effectively, uh, those customers are the ones who built long-term ordering plans, and so as we see lead times begin to come down, they're just going to have different ordering patterns than we have now. So to be in range sequentially on orders at a time where our lead times are coming down significantly, I think that's a positive. When you talk about 44% recurring revenue, so that's kind of subscription-based software yeah. service stuff, what's the, what's the life of that? I'm just kind of trying to figure out what the arrangements are in terms of how often that has to be refreshed. Well, so that number gets reflected in our RPO, and that number, RPO is $32 billion as we exit the quarter, and $17 billion of that will be recognized over the next four quarters. So the average on our software deals, are, they're typically three-year kind of deals, so that's a, that's a rough estimate. One of the things I remember you talking about uh, last year was the danger of talking ourselves into a recessionary mindset, yeah. and I wonder if you think you can judge at this point whether or not we've done that or avoided it. Well, it was, it was really funny in Davos because I, I told your, your colleagues who were interviewing everybody there, I said, the only time we talk about a recession is when you look us in the eye and say, are we going to have a recession? <laughs> and so the... Uh, um, and what we discussed as the business leaders that were there, we said, look, we control a lot of the emotion around spending. We control the narrative around whether we're spending or not. And if we all decide we're gonna go into a recession, then we're probably not gonna spend, which then could trigger us into a recession. But what I, one other thing I think is important, I think that the CEOs of today have basically been developed as executives through lots of times of crisis. And so you don't see this knee-jerk reaction to cut spending because we want things to get back to normal. Because none of us believe that there, what is normal? We just think there's gonna be another crisis a year from now, another crisis, and that's what we've had to deal with. And so I think there's a little bit of that mindset that works You think here. that explains uh, labor markets, CapEx plans? I mean, some call it uh, worker hoarding, but I guess in your view, it's just a, a better, radar with which to see through cycles or see through crises? I think that CEOs today understand that, again, there is no normal. So if I stop investing, particularly in technology right now, then my competitors may not. And I could, be, I could find myself at a competitive disadvantage in a real hurry. And I think that's part of the mindset that's going on with some of the CEOs. 
Um, back to the quarter itself, uh, Chuck, uh, software subscription uh, sales were up 17% year over year. I'm looking at a note here from I Jade. think it was 15, but yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, well, they had 17, but... Well, we'll take their number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although they come, they actually end by saying, listen, they're encouraged just because subscription revenue reached a new high in software, but still believe the company needs to take steps to significantly accelerate its software subscription business to sustain what they say is the transformation into a software-centric company. You agree with that? And if so, what do you need to do to take those steps to significantly accelerate? Well, we, I mean, there's lots of ways you can do that, but uh, we're, we're looking right now at, over the course of the next couple of years, transitioning a lot of our portfolio to be offered as a subscription. So you, you'll see a, a period in the future where we'll offer traditional networking as a subscription. And so, it's going to take some time. There's business model implications. There are operational implications. There, there are uh, offer implications, software implications. So that'll take a little bit longer to get there. But that's that's one of the things that we're we're trying to do to actually do just that. Um, on the call, you were at, uh, you know you made some comments about AI and ChatGPT and the opportunities. Not a lot of follow-up. I was a little surprised because you said the following: This is a massive opportunity mm -hmm. for us. Nobody sort of said, well, what does that mean? So I will ask, <laughs> what do you mean by that when you say you're in active discussions with lots of customers around it? What are your expectations here, both broadly speaking, since we've been yeah. talking about AI yeah. so much, and more specifically to Cisco? Well, first of all, that was the last question on the call, so nobody had a chance to follow up. Yeah. But uh, I think, look, I'm, I'm really proud of what our teams have accomplished in the web scale infrastructure space. If, you're, if you think back three, three years ago, it's basically nothing, and now it's a multi-billion dollar business for us. And so as we engage with those customers in particular, they are building these AI networks with compute and underlying high-performance high networking behind it that are going to be bigger than their current core cloud networks, which is hard to even fathom. And the underlying network performance behind that is going to be require three to four times the performance to be able to deal with the speeds that they need. So these, this is a huge opportunity for us. Our teams have been building this incredible silicon that's powering these platforms that we're selling to them for their infrastructure today. They're, they're two to three to four times the performance at 70 to 80% less power consumption, which is a big, big deal. So uh, we think over the next five years, this is a really big opportunity for us. Um, Chuck, you, Cisco's become a, a pretty aggressive returner of capital to shareholders yeah. through buybacks and dividends. What do you make of the current uh, kind of villainization of buybacks? Would it make a difference to your capital return if there were a 4% buyback tax? I, I don't think so. No. I mean, the 1% didn't, I don't think, obviously didn't impact anybody. I think, look, it's, it's, this is a highly emotional topic that everybody has a different opinion on. Maybe it's a bit like Bitcoin that you guys were talking about <laughs> earlier today. But uh, I think that uh, look, we're going to do the right thing for our shareholders, and, and we're just going to run the business the way we're supposed to run the business. Let me end on another somewhat emotional topic, which is China. Uh, relations between the U.S. and uh, China continue to deteriorate. You know, you have some business there, not as much, but you do rely on it for certain parts. Obviously, you referenced when there were supply chain issues. What's your take on the latest, and you know, what are your fears there in terms of what might occur? Well. Prior to the most recent incident, we were a bit optimistic after the G20 when she and Biden sat down and had a conversation. Uh, we, a small group of us met with Leo Hu when we were in Davos and felt good about the commentary from him and how he was thinking about wanting to re-engage with the West. And so my hope is that we, get, we work through this latest incident, we come to some agreement and we get back to where we were headed, uh, where we, we realize we're going to compete. We're going to be competitive as countries. 
but we need to figure out how we do that in a way that doesn't continue to put stress in a global economy. And that would be my hope. Uh, but you're right, our business here is not massive at all. It's like two to three percent tops. Uh, but we are highly dependent upon them for supply chain. They're very good at it. And, uh, and we still have uh, you know, a lot of supply chain there. Yeah. Chuck, always appreciate your coming by. Uh, thank you. It's great to see you guys. Thanks. You too. Chuck Robbins from Cisco. As we go to break, take a look at bonds today. Obviously, a lot of eco data to chew on. Uh, yields close to session highs at the moment. Tenure just about 15 basis points from a four handle. And we'll see what the rest of the day brings us in the way of Fed speak. Be right back. Alphabet's Google reportedly looking for some help from its employees to work out the new kinks of its AI software, Bard. According to a company-wide email, it's asking employees to help fix wrong answers, saying AI learns best by example. Separately, IBM's chief, Arvind Krishna, in this interview with the FT, says he sees practical use cases for AI and quantum computing in just a few years. Mikey was asked about the impact on labor and his general view is that the world is short of labor, just demographically, uh, structurally, and that maybe this time, this kind of automation is a good thing. Yeah, productivity shock, I guess, is the one maybe positive spin on that. Um, and, and maybe the way to think about it much more than, you know, consumer user interface and how it's going to change. Obviously, search, big implications there. Uh, I think that the, the, the mood has cooled a little bit with regard to alphabets botched demonstration given that Microsoft also had a glitchy uh, effort in retrospect. And, and also, just as I said, um, you know, if you have a 1.4 or now $1.2 trillion company, hopefully they have time to figure it out. And they're correct that they're not always first to market. Google was not the first search engine. In fact, maybe remember how many there used to be? Um, True. So we'll see. Although I'm hearing there's, that Sundar Pichai is going to be under some pressure no, here. There's I mean, no this doubt. was not well done at all. It makes them look bad. People are questioning whether a company that has invested billions, obviously yeah. with not a lot of transparency in this, how they possibly could lose what everybody assumed was a lead. Well, and I, we'll see. Isn't it not just the classic, like, we have a massive high margin near monopoly business, and why are we going to be the ones to disrupt it? I mean, I think it's just that classic dilemma that maybe you'd just be reluctant case. to go all in on it. In True. That sense, but, but they have been developing the technology yeah, that's for right. some time, and now they potentially right. are going to be disintermediated. I mean, sure. I, I don't know. I mean, if I'm Pishai, I'm wondering if I'm going to keep my job. For sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, we're all we're all going to watch that. Meantime, there's, of course, the question about the, the supply tech stack. Our Christina Parts and Evelos is joining us with a look at what the AI mania might mean for chips beyond, say, NVIDIA, right? Yeah, beyond. But I will have I have to mention NVIDIA. But it feels like just yesterday we were talking about the metaverse and now it's artificial intelligence. The difference this time, and it was mentioned by Cisco's CEO just earlier, is that AI is being built on decades of existing machine learning already embedded in business processes. So it's not an overnight fad and why so many analysts are bullish on the longevity of this trend. So I got to get to it. Driving up names like NVIDIA, you pointed out. UBS, though, pointing out that Microsoft's chat GPT used about 10,000 NVIDIA GPUs, graphic processing units, to train the model. NVIDIA's stock up, what, 55% year to date? Begging the question, is that stock growth justified or is it just people jumping in to the topic du jour? Bank of America says NVIDIA could lead the AI arms race in the next five years, something Cisco CEO also just said today. While JP Morgan calls out Broadcom and Marvell as AI beneficiaries. Why? Because Google needs to ramp up its processes regardless, David, if, it, if they didn't do a good job. It's chatbot and it's already a $1 billion Broadcom customer while Marvell sells cloud chips 
for AI. Even Taiwan Semi benefits, given over 50% of its total revenue, comes from the sale of super advanced chips. That's about 7 nanometers or smaller. But none of this will happen overnight. These chip names still have to deal with cyclical trends. Weaker demand, let's take out auto for a moment, supply gluts, capital expenditure cuts from the likes of Amazon, Meta, and the list continues. And of course, if they're cutting CapEx, that means they aren't buying as many chips all while trying to figure out how much inventory to have on hand so we avoid a shortage that we saw during the pandemic. In other words, AI is not an overnight phenomenon, but we'll, ha- we'll take time to, to ramp up and putting into question the stock jumps that we've seen thus far. NVIDIA is the highlight, but there are others as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this uh, sort of short-term surplus, but potential long-term deficit. That's kind of why Gelsinger says he feels like he's stepping on the gas and the brakes at the same time, I imagine. Right, so then is, it begs into the question, every run-up that we've seen within the chip sector thus far. If he's an example with the foundry level. TSMC, they did post some uh, gains in January with their sales report, but overall they are cutting back. They're spending a lot more in Japan and in the United States. So there's a lot of these questions to, uh, I guess, you're questioning why the run-up has happened so quickly and if it's justified just in the near term. And who's left out? Well, it depends on the exposure then. So yeah. if you're talking about NXPI, but that's auto, right? So that's right. another beneficiary. Who's left out? Well, I don't want to say Intel because well, there's a lot of... Uh, PC uh, focus. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, you've got... There's a, a, applied materials, uh, which we know they're coming out with earnings. Yep. Uh, overall, there's many that we could talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a complex, complex business given the various industry silos that they serve. Uh, thanks, Christina. Good to see you. Christina Parts and Evelos. As we watch the markets here, Dow down 376, just shy of 4,100 on this very busy Thursday. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.